Where would you have gone vacationing had you been and lived in Bible times? Maybe, maybe to the Sea of Galilee. It's even in a popular place today. And maybe you would have taken the advantage to go deep sea fishing because that's what we're going to do this morning. Luke chapter 5, if you have your scriptures with you, turn with me there as we follow along in this marvelous story. Fishing is an enjoyable sport, as some 34 million Americans can attest. People go to the lakes and the streams and the rivers dreaming of the big catch, and every year we Americans spend $17 billion on fishing equipment to enjoy this sport. Now, if you want to take it up a notch when you're on vacation and you're on the coast, nearly every port has the opportunity for you to go deep sea fishing so that you can come home with the big catch. Now, like any other sport, fishing can, well, it can be all-consuming. It can be an obsession. One ardent fisherman commented to his friend, he said, I got a new rod and reel for my wife. Best trade I ever made. <laughs> and of course, you've heard this old, wise, classic bit of wisdom Give a man a fish and you'll feed him for a day, but teach a man to fish and you'll get rid of him for a whole weekend. <laughs> Fishing plays a key part in the Gospels, and most of it centers around the Sea of Galilee. Now, the event that we're going to study this morning takes place there, this body of water, 13 miles long and 8 miles wide, and known in the Bible by three different names, which gets confusing every once in a while. It's known as the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias, and the Lake of Gennesaret. It is nestled in a low spot of the Earth's surface, making it 680 feet below sea level. Its somewhat tropical climate makes it a prime area for fishing, especially in the day of Jesus. Now, there were several, nine to be exact, communities that were, that were built on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, none of which, by the way, had any less than 15,000 people. That is the strength of the fishing industry in the day of Jesus' earthly ministry. And it was so strong because there was an abundance of fish in the Sea of Galilee. Now, Peter, who is one of the principal characters in the story we're going to explore this morning, uh, is from the community of Bethsaida which means house of fishing. Anytime you come across the word Beth in front of a name, it means house of. Bethlehem, house of bread. Bethel, house of God. Bethsaida, house of fishing. Now remember, sometimes when we read this story, we think, oh, this is the first time that Peter and Jesus have met. But it's not. They have met on other occasions. Uh, Andrew, who is Simon Peter's brother, had been a disciple of John the Baptist. And when Andrew found out from John who Jesus was... Andrew spent a whole day with Jesus at his feet, went home that afternoon, got his brother Simon, brought him back to meet Jesus, anticipating that Simon too would believe him to be the Messiah. And it is at that moment in time that Jesus gives Simon his new name, the one we know him by best, Peter, which in the Greek means rock. And then on an occasion, sometime after that, but right before this particular story, Simon Peter's mother-in-law, is ill, and they call for Jesus, and Jesus comes to the house in Capernaum. Now, Peter had a house in Bethsaida, and Peter had a house in Capernaum. He's a well-to-do fisherman. He, uh, he has two homes. So he comes to the house in Capernaum, and there he heals Peter's mother-in-law. This would have made a huge impact on the whole region, 
We are not told how happy Peter was about this particular miracle in his life, but it would have made an impact. Now, it's also likely that Peter and Andrew owned their own boats. Uh, they, they would have taken hirelings into their service. They would have had employees. They would have joined together to form a company. As a matter of fact, verses 7 and 10 of Luke 5 indicate that James and John were their partners, their business partners in fishing. And judging from Peter's character, folks, I would suggest that he probably felt nobody knew fishing like he did. Now, on the day of our story, the crowds have swarmed to hear Jesus, and, and they have filled the, the, the seashore and the banks that go up from the seashore, and they have pressed on Jesus so much that they have moved him backwards all the way down to the water's edge. You know, the, the crowds are just excited to be with him, but they've, they've really pushed him to where he could go no farther. And so Jesus sees the boat here anchored by the shore that Peter and Andrew, James and John are cleaning their nets and Jesus goes over to the boat. Nothing is more tiring than working hard and accomplishing zilch. And that's what Peter and his crew had experienced. And so Jesus stepped into Peter's boat. Now remember, this is not the first time they've met. This is not an impertinent uh, kind of action here on the part of our Lord. He needs to use the boat as a podium for teaching, a pulpit for preaching. And so Jesus said, will you please just push out a little bit from the shore? Cleaning nets after a futile night of fishing had to be an arduous task, cleaning all the, the seaweed, the debris, everything out of the nets. You know, especially when you've caught nothing. And about the time that Jesus finishes up teaching, Peter probably was finishing up cleaning the nets. And in verse four, it says, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. <laughs> now this is where Jesus, the Jewish rabbi and former carpenter steps over the line. Any good fisherman along that sea of Galilee knew that daytime was not the time to fish. After all, that's when the sun came out. It's when the surface of the water warmed. It's when the fish went deeper out of the region of the nets. And they had fished all night. They'd caught nothing. If they had caught nothing in the night, the fish were already gone. I mean, what a futile effort. Besides, the nets were now clean. Peter was tired. You're more tired when you've accomplished nothing than when you aren't. He was probably hungry. He was probably a little bit cranky. He wanted to go home because he was going to have to come back that night and do the same thing all over again. Besides, today, they were going to be poorer than they were yesterday because they had no fish to sell. You could almost hear the exhaustion in Peter's voice. Verse 5, Simon answered, Master, we worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I'll let down the nets. Now, you got to read between the lines of what Peter is saying. Master, I wouldn't offend you purposely, but I've been a fisherman all my life. I know this lake like the back of my hand. I know where the fish are, and I know where they are not. Perhaps you should stick to preaching and let me do the fishing. But in order that you might learn a lesson from me... I'm going to push out. I'm going to let down the net so that you can see this is not the right time to do it. We'll sail back in, clean the dirty nets all over, and get ready for tonight. Just watch. So with less than enthusiastic effort, I think Peter and Andrew casually push out into the deep, cast their nets over the side. Now, I, I don't know. I'm only speculating here. But I think 
if you've got three guys on a boat and you got one net, I think that Peter handed one of the ropes to Jesus that's holding on to the net and probably just kind of gives him a nod like, you want to do this? You're going to help. Peter's in the middle. You know, Andrew's probably over here. I think they're standing up. I don't think Peter even looked at Jesus, just standing there, you know, just enough time to show the futility of this whole thing. And suddenly the ropes go taunt in their hand. All the slack goes out of the net. And, and, and there is a blinding flash of light. Because remember, they're used to fishing in the night. And when the sun beats off those scaly sides as the silvery fish begin to wriggle in the water, Peter's mind goes into action. They begin to pull, and it is the catch of a lifetime. They can't get all of the, of the fish into the boat. They hail for Pete, James and John to come over. They come over. They barely get it into the boat. I think the whole time Jesus is standing there chuckling, laughing, smiling like a kid on Christmas morning. Finally, Peter looks over at him, not with humor, not with joy, but with this awesome reality in whose presence he stood in verse 8, when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and all of his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the son of Zebedee, Simon's partners. But the divine response back to Peter is not the voice that thunders over the surface of the water, shaking the very hills of Galilee, but the compassionate voice of a simple carpenter-turned-preacher who reassures Simon with these words, <laughs> Don't be afraid, Simon. From now on, you will catch men. And when they reached the shore, they left everything and followed him. Peter could not have known at the time, but this deep-sea fishing expedition would forever change the trajectory of his life and death. On the shores of Galilee, one call ended, and a whole new call began. Every one of us in this room needs a moment like this, a moment where the old life ends and the new life begins, where a temporal calling gives way to an eternal calling. So what is it this morning that we can learn from this event, this deep sea fishing experience that will change our lives? Uh, just a couple important things to remember. Here's the first one. What Jesus says matters. While we're not told what Jesus preached that morning from, from the boat, we do know from other examples that it would have been instructive, it would have been inspiring, and it would have been insightful. You see, Jesus just had a way with words. He taught in a manner that everyone could understand, from the youngest in the group to the oldest in the group. He taught with a power that captured people's attention. He taught with an insight that made people think about life in ways they had never thought about life before. And for the last 2,000 years, humanity has marveled at the value of such parables as the prodigal son or the good Samaritan. We have marveled and been inspired by the words of the Beatitudes, comforted by the promises of Jesus, challenged by the Sermon on the Mount, instructed by the Lord's Prayer, and humbled by his words of grace from the cross itself. One cannot honestly listen to the words of Jesus without gaining insight into life itself. What Jesus said matters. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 35, Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. What he said matters. It mattered then, it matters now. 
Not only do I believe that what Jesus said is insightful, I would go a step farther to suggest that one cannot honestly study the life of Jesus, honestly, there's the key word, honestly study the life of Jesus and remain the same. There is a difference in studying to pass a test or studying to gain knowledge. You know what I mean? I've studied to pass a test to get a grade. And then hours or days afterwards, forgot a lot of what I studied. You, how, you've crammed for tests before, haven't you? You know what I'm talking about. You know you got to get the grade. You got to get the score. So you cram for the test. And then a few days later, it's gone. But when you study to have the knowledge, when you're passionate about something, when you really want to learn, you learn for the sake of learning. And that sticks with you. When you honestly take a look at what Jesus has done, it sticks with you. And it will change your life forever. In him and him alone we find redemption and forgiveness and transformation. Hoosier author Lou Wallace, who served with distinction in the Mexican War and was a general in the Civil War, would be considered at best an apathetic Christian early in his life. Following the war, he ran into one of his buddies, from the Civil War, this time atheist Robert Ingersoll. And in their conversation, Ingersoll, in his efforts to try and convince Wallace that he was way off base with his Christianity, actually made Lou Wallace dig deeper to know why he believed what he believed. He'd been kind of apathetic before that. Now he needed to know, do I really believe this and why? And so convicting was his response to all of his study that one of his answers was to write a book called been her. Don't know if you know the story very well, but it's a story of redemption. It's a story of forgiveness, a story of transformation through Christ. And if you think the story is too old to be relevant, this month, a brand new movie, a remake, again, opens in theaters all across the country called Ben Hur. Because you see, you, you, you can't ever take the story of Jesus honestly and not have it impact who you are. Well, here's the second thing I want you to see this morning, and it's simply this. How we respond back to the Lord matters. What Jesus says matters, but what we do in response to what he says matters as well. Now, I want you to know that what we see in this miracle was no accidental miracle. Sometimes I think we, we look at Jesus and say, oh, well, that was a nice thing to do. It showed his mighty power. He has power over the fish. Oh, oh, that is such a shallow look at this miracle. This miracle had a very specific purpose. Jesus was at the onset of his earthly ministry. He was looking for a team that was going to carry on his mission after he was gone. He had to have the right men on that team. This miracle was a test. And if they passed, he had the right men on his team. If they didn't pass, they didn't, he didn't have the right men for his team. Listening without responding doesn't cut it with God. James chapter 1 verse 22 says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And so Jesus sets out in this miracle to see if Peter and Andrew and James and John are going to do what he says. And this would be their test. Take careful note. We still have the same test. Test questions haven't changed in 2,000 years. You can't cheat on this test because God is looking for the right response. And you and I have to give what we believe is the response to what he's calling for. Let me show you what he was doing with Peter. 
this is what he was looking for. Here's, here's the test. As a matter of fact, what I want you to do is on your bulletin, grade yourself in each one of these areas. Okay? There are four parts to the test. These are not essays. Okay? These are responses. I want you to, I want you to just examine yourself. I'm not going to see this. Nobody else is going to see this. You just answer how you're scoring on the test. Here's the first part of the test. The willingness to serve others. We've talked about Peter and his crew working all night long, and then Jesus comes over to the boat and says, hey, Peter, would you, would you just launch out a little bit? Would you just push off a little bit? Now, now, folks, understand this. Who is Jesus? He is a man who spent the first 30 years of his life as a carpenter. He is no weakling. He's a strong man. He handles wood and tools all the time. He carried his cross to Calvary at least until he fell underneath the load. This is a strong man. It doesn't take a lot to push a boat back into the water off the shore. Jesus could have said, go to use your boat for just a minute, Peter. You all just keep working on the nets. And Jesus pushed off the boat, climbed in, and began to preach and teach. That would have been the easy thing to do. He's not looking for a, he's looking for a response. Especially with a guy who's tired, who's frustrated, who's cleaning nets. And he says, Peter, push back a little bit. Need to use your boat. Peter could have said, and who would have blamed him? Well, I've done, I've done my part. This is your gig, Lord. I, I'm, I'm not a teacher. You go ahead. Help yourself to the boat. But despite his weariness, he did exactly what Jesus asked him to do. He pushed off. You see, Jesus was looking for a servant's heart. Was Peter a problem solver? Did he go after the issues? Was he a fix-it kind of guy? I think he was. His impetuous nature throughout the Gospels would suggest that he was always trying to solve something or fix something. He was the first to speak up, even though sometimes he didn't have the right answer. He was the first to get out of the boat when Jesus came walking on the water, even though he eventually took his eyes off of Jesus. He was the first to pull out his sword in the Garden of Gethsemane and whack off an enemy's ear, even though Jesus rebuked him for that. But these were ways that Peter was trying to be a problem solver. True disciples, true team players are those who work to accomplish the goal, who will go the extra mile to solve problems, who face the issues head on, and regardless of their weariness or frustration, will give their best. Peter may not have always had the best answer, but he always approached it with the best intention. He was going to make it right. Jesus had a pulpit problem, and Peter had a boat. He could solve and fix the concern. His servant heart was the first right response. Grade one for Peter, A+. Now, God isn't so much looking to us for the right answers. He's looking to us for the right heart. Matthew 20, verse 26 says, Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Folks, I want you to know God scores differently than the world. God does not grade on the curve. You either have a servant's heart or you don't have a servant's heart. It's sort of like fishing. You either catch the fish or you don't catch the fish. You don't ever come halfway with a fish. You either do or you don't. Having leftover bait at the end of the day doesn't count either. So here's the question. It's time to grade yourself on a servant's heart. If that was you in the boat, And that was the night you'd had. And Jesus said, push out a little bit so I can use your boat. What would you have said? What would you have done? What kind of a servant's heart do you have? Put a score on your bulletin. Here's the second part of the test. The readiness to follow instructions. 
After Jesus was done using the boat for a pulpit, he told Peter to push out into the deep water and let down the nets. Now, we know we've already looked at this for a little bit. You, you can just imagine what Peter is dealing with. Lord, now's not the time to fish. We, I've been doing this all my life. I know this won't work. You're a fine preacher, and I'm sure you were a better carpenter than I could ever be, but I know deep sea fishing. You know what they say, Jesus? When from the east, fishing is least. When from the west, fishing is best. I've got this. However, because you've asked me, I'll do it. Now, here you have the professional, Peter. He's the professional fisherman. You have Jesus, the passenger, the preacher, the carpenter. The professional should have the authority over the guest in the boat. Whenever you're in a deep sea fishing cruise, as I understand, the captain of the boat has the final say. But Peter looks at this and says, okay, I'll follow the instructions. I think it's wrong. I think it's lousy. I don't like the advice. But I am going to follow your lead. Peter's obedience was the right response to the second test. So let me ask you, how good are you at taking advice or following instruction? God gives us great wisdom and counsel, and, and yet we sometimes don't take it. He has yet to be proven wrong, so why are we reluctant to heed his advice? Have you ever considered this? Just stop and think about it for a minute. What if the whole world just kept, kept the last six of the Ten Commandments. Uh, take the top four out, which have us to do with our relationship with God. We're going to remove those for just a minute, even though those are the most important ones. What if, we, what if everybody just kept the last six commandments? Profound statements about treating others like we want to be treated. Honor your parents. Don't steal. Don't murder. Don't be an adulterer. Don't lie. Don't covet what somebody else is or what somebody else has. Now, if we just did that, those six commands, those six words of wisdom would change our culture. It would change our world. Six. That's all it takes. We can't even keep six. And you say, well, I've never murdered anyone. Good for you. Have you ever shared any gossip that took the life out of somebody else's reputation and murdered their spirit? Well, I've never committed adultery. Good for you. Have you always been faithful to the Lord and to his bride, the church? Well, I've never told a lie. You just did. The Lord is looking for those in his kingdom who will demonstrate a readiness to follow instructions. After all, Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my command. Doing the right thing always matters. Grade yourself this morning on your willingness to follow instructions. How good are you? Even if you're the captain of your life, can you humble yourself to follow the instructions? Because I'm telling you, if you can't follow instructions, you can't lead either. A good leader is one who follows instructions first.
Here's the third part of the test. The humility to share the credit. Some people want all the credit regardless of the situation. Remember notice that? Peter could have come back to shore bragging, saying, I knew it. I could feel it in my bones. There was a, there was a school of fish right out there. Didn't we do good? That's not how Peter came back. Peter came back with this humble spirit. Oh, Lord, get away from me. I, I can't be in your presence. You who have control over the fish of the sea. I, I'm a sinful man. This wasn't false humility. Peter was deeply moved by what he had just experienced. But you know the type I'm talking about. The people who always have to be the best. Who always have to be number one in a situation. Who always has the best idea. Who always has to be in control. It, it always has to be done their way or no other way. The list is endless. They don't make for good team players. They don't make for good team leaders either. Peter's humble response, Lord, go away from me. You can't be in the presence of my sinfulness, was the third right response. Again, he gets an A+. Humility is an honest appraisal of who we are. It's not overstating. It's not understating our abilities. And by the way, false humility demeans the gifts that God gave us for a divine purpose. False humility, therefore, is as detrimental as no humility at all. C.S. Lewis said it best, true humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. How's your humility grade? Last part of the test. The ambition to accept the challenge. Jesus said something like this, if you guys like fishing for these scaly things, <laughs> do I have a challenge for you? Luke 5, 11 says, so they pulled their boats up to shore, left everything and followed him. Jesus said, I want you to be fishers of men. Peter not only passed the test, he scored 100. You see, Jesus was looking for these qualities that would say, here's a man I can trust with the most important mission in the world. You may be thinking, well, wait a minute, I can't close the doors to my business. I can't resign from my job. I've got a family to feed and employees to consider. Well, I don't think Peter, Andrew, James, and John sold their business either. They just put their employees in charge of the business while they followed Jesus. They too had families to feed. They too had expenses to cover. And right after the resurrection, remember after the resurrection, this is a few days, maybe a week after the resurrection, something like that, and, and they are back out fishing. It's recorded in the last chapters of the Gospel of John. They're out fishing again. They still had their business. It's just that their business did not require their priority. Their relationship with Jesus Christ did. And, and, and this last chapter, it is such a great story. They've had a, a futile night again. They're coming back into shore. They see somebody on the beach. They don't see who it is. They can't tell who it is. Probably in the, in the gray early morning, there's a charcoal fire cooking there. And they hear a voice from the shore say, have you any fish? And it's probably Peter that answered. No, we haven't caught a thing. And then the voice says, cast your net on the right side. And they did. And suddenly the, the water was alive with fish. John even includes an exact count. There were 153 fish in the nets. And they struggled to pull them to shore. And as they were pulling them in, it is John who says, it's the Lord. And Peter jumps out of the boat, swims to the shore. And in the presence of the risen Lord, he realizes that at the beginning of the ministry and at the end of his earthly ministry, it is the same miracle to draw them together to say, this is the call on the rest of your life. And this time, they did lead everything behind. And they began to fish for men. In just a few weeks, Peter would preach the first sermon ever. 
of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 3,000 would become a part of the foundation of the first church. And the rest, well, we're here today, aren't we? The rest is history. What will happen if we don't take up the challenge? What would have happened if Peter said, sorry, Lord, I like fishing for the scaly things better? What if the early church had not passed on to the next generation? And what will happen if we do not take up the challenge to pass on to the next generation what is so vital to our lives? Never forget that we find in him our true identity, not only now, but always. And you don't have to go deep sea fishing to discover that. So grade yourself this morning. What is your willingness to take up the challenge for Jesus Christ? Now, here's something we often forget. There were still thousands of people on the shore watching this whole thing play out. Jesus finished teaching. He said, just push out. These people didn't go anywhere. Some of them may have left, but some of them were waiting to see. They think maybe Jesus is going to come back and teach again. They're watching. They're watching. They're experiencing this whole thing. They knew what Peter had experienced. No fish. And suddenly they come back with their nets breaking. Their boat's about to sink. Wow. What the people saw transformed them as well. You are in front of an audience every day of your lives. What kind of an impact are you making for Jesus Christ? One of my favorite things so far in the Olympics was an interview that uh, David Badiah and Steele Johnson did right after they took the silver medal in the platform diving, synchronized diving, uh, earlier in the beginning of the Olympics. And, and they were uh, on record with NBC News, and the reporter was asking them all kinds of things. And, and their comments were both humble, ambitious, and reflecting a servant's heart. You could see they were seizing the moment. Bodiah pointed to the diving platform and he said, when my mind is on this and I'm thinking I'm defined by this, then my mind goes crazy. And then he said, we both know that our identity is in Christ. I moved to the edge of the couch when I heard that. She turned the microphone to Steele Johnson, native of Carmel, Indiana, who at the age of 12 nearly drowned in a diving accident, but kept on diving. He still suffers with memory loss because of that, but he's kept on diving. And he added this, the fact that I was going into this event knowing that my identity is rooted in Christ and not what the result of this competition is just gave me peace and it let me enjoy the contest. Before they compete, these two men recite Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I think they passed the test. What do you think? You may not be speaking in front of thousands or millions as they were on national TV, but you're speaking with your life before others every day. Jesus calls you to follow and lead others to know him.